But that process of God revealing God's self and then us responding to it doesn't stop with the production of scripture, right? It continues. So God then picks up those words as a vehicle for himself and, and the Holy Spirit squeezes Jesus, the jelly, into the donut, right? Um, and squeezes it, squeezes him into the words of scripture. That's your shirt right there. That's jelly donuts. Jelly, I don't know. Jelly donut Jesus. Jelly yeah. donut Jesus. Anyway. So he squeezes Jesus into into the, the, the words of scripture, and then those serve as a vehicle to bring him to us once again. And then we respond to that, right, with a human interpretation. And then that response, he picks up again and starts the whole process over. So it's just this continual process of um, God incarnating God's self in and through what we humans respond and interpret. Mm. What is happening there, you fine folks? I hope that your day is well. My day's been good so far. I think you're really gonna like today's episode. So, brought Gabriel Gordon up on the show. Gabriel wrote a book last year. It was fantastic. Now, full disclosure, I read it. I also endorsed it, which I still find a little bit crazy when people ask me to do that. And um, it's humbling. Either way, like a year later, finally got him on the show. Now, here's a bit of what you can expect. So if there is a little bit, not a crazy amount of salty language in this episode. So if you've got little kids with you, may want to skip this one, at least for now. Again, it's not crazy bad, but it is there. We'll call it PG-13, right? Outside of that, I think you are in for some goodness. I know I really enjoyed doing this episode as well as editing it. And uh, also really want that jelly donut and you'll get that as you listen through. I promise that'll make more sense. Anyway, let's roll it with Gabriel Gordon. And I'm an open book, so you can ask me about anything. I can ask you about why Texas is better than Oklahoma. Got you. Got oh, you. damn. So <laughs> I, so I was, I'm, I'm actually originally from, I was born in the Northwest. Yeah, I, know. I, yeah, I yeah. exiled though to Oklahoma, <laughs> but I, I think here's, here's what I say. Texas is better than Oklahoma but it's still Texas <laughs> and they're, and they're really the same state. Just Texas has more pride about it. Right. They culturally, they're like, they both wear cowboy well, boots. We have they a bigger like football. We have a bigger handle. So it's true. It, it matters. It's, it's much, are you from Texas? <laughs> yes. <Are> you, <laughs> yeah. I'm from Midland, Texas. So, but you live in the East coast now. I live in Virginia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my just, friend is from uh, the Amarillo border area. Oh yeah, a the good one. Handle. One yeah. of my good friends is also from Amarillo. Lives in Charlottesville here, close by. We, we talk every oh, day. Nice. Yeah. All right. Let me hit record on the video okay. for cool. the patrons, because you know we're doing the thing. All right. Recording well, in progress. I, I like how I you're fixing your hair. I'll fix my hair. Yeah, as I would. Well. I would have put oil in my beard if I yeah. would have known. Well, it's gonna be on video. Hold on. Let me. There's one. I actually. There's um, one I don't know in if you the can way. See, this is for the patrons, but I'm actually going bald. 
I have male pattern baldness too. I do not want to hear that I'm going bald. See, <laughs> <laughs> no. I I'm I'm convinced that we need to stop all these like fundraisers for cancer uh, research, and we need to start doing research for male pattern baldness. It's like, how many people are suffering around the world from yeah. male pattern baldness? I don't know that I agree, but for two reasons. <laughs> so my wife is a nurse for pediatric cancer patients, um, okay. but second, oh. <laughs> second, no one dies from hair loss. Um, so, so, but I do miss my hair. My wife would tell you I false advertised, you know, slightly better shape, full head of hair, you Mm -hmm. know, anyway, you know, we, uh, we were talking about sarcasm earlier. I'm, I'm pretty sarcastic. So (laughs) half of the things I say are, uh, dark jokes that are not meant to be. No, there's no equivocating now. There's no equivocating. You're done. (laughs) (laughs) My, My wife is actually a nurse too. What does she do? Uh, telemetry cardiac stuff. I don't know what, I know what cardiac means. Telemetry to me is like a NASA term. Like we put people on the moon. So anyway, all right, let's, um, let's do the thing. Gabriel Gordon, you're not master or anything, right? Like not, no, Uh, no, not not till May. Not till May. You know, I could hold it. No, I'm not going to hold it that long. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Gabriel Gordon. You want Gabriel? You want Gabe? What do you want? What, what do you, whatever you want. Seth. You know, whatever it's, you want. Look, it's I your, just made the cancer joke. It's so, your name. I mean. It's your name. Um, <laughs> welcome to the show, man. I think we have been emailing intermittently, like every nine weeks, for it feels like a year, and it might actually be a year. I'm going to check now. But I am glad that you're here, and I am very, very sorry that I am not good at the internet, and um. <laughs> And that it took as long as it took to get you onto the show. But I'm glad you're here, man. If I was mad, I, it'd be the pot calling the kettle black, you know. So I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't be mad. Are you equally as bad at the internet? I'm, I'm pretty bad at the internet, yeah. 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 I um, I mean, just for, for, for case in point, I shared. So I make uh, merchandise for the show. That is not a plug. This just literally is a funny story that happened yesterday. Um, and I put a new design up and I asked for some people's opinion yesterday, like in a messenger thread. And I was like, tell yeah. me what comes to mind when you see this. And then I thought that I posted the image. 45 minutes later, I get a text. When I see what? And I'm like, man, I, sw- <laughs> I knew, but I thought that I did it. I would have I bet money that I put that in there. And I didn't. And I, and I, apologize. Mm-hmm. I told them I'm also not good at the internet. So, mm-hmm. so when you tell people who and what you are, what is that? I like to start off by saying that my Myers-Briggs is shared by the Joker and Captain Jack Sparrow. I don't even know. Um, what is that Myers-Briggs? It's it's the ENTP. ENTP? So, that's what they are? Yeah, it's the, yeah, it's the debater personality. That is also me. Uh, I did not know that that... Oh, really? Yes, yeah. but I didn't know that... So the Joker and who? Captain Jack Sparrow and Tom Hanks. Well, Tom's and, amazing, and, yeah. And I think Newt Gingrich, too, so... <laughs> runs the gamut. <laughs> so... <laughs> So that's where you like to start. And so yeah. which one of those do you lean more towards? The drunk pirate uh, or uh, narcissistic want to watch the world burn? Where, where are you at in there? I think I fluctuate. Really? You know, oh. um, you know sometimes uh, I was talking to a friend about COVID recently. And uh, he was talking about like, we live in, so we live in Grand Junction, which is very heavily Trump country. And, and it's in Colorado, but it's it's not like the rest of Colorado. And so we, he was like doomsday and like, dude, what if, you know, with uh, uh, Biden's mandate, just people start pulling out their guns and it just goes batshit crazy. Are we allowed to cuss on the podcast? You just did. 
We did it. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. And it's then, totally fine. It's totally fine. So I'm gonna go batshit crazy. And he's like, We I need to, I need I got, I need to get a plan together. And um and I think I said something about, you know, just give them over to their their folly. Just let the let the world burn. Mm. You know, mm. there. So yeah, so it depends. You know, some days I'm more hopeful and more like drunken caps captain jack sparrow and other days i'm a little bit more like let the world burn if they want to fuck it up you know I, yeah i can't do anything about it so yeah. yeah yeah so what do you do then outside of that but it, while while you're while you're voyeuristically watching the world burn um what yeah. what else what else keeps you busy so i like to pretend i'm a writer um the book we're talking about today is my second book and i'm working on my third and fourth and Wait, occasionally a blog yeah the first one did not get self it got self-published. So I like to, you know, there's this episode of the Simpsons where Lisa gets put into a, a fancy prep boarding school and her teacher, you know, says, Hey, this, this work you're working on is so great. Let's, let's publish it. And Lisa asks the question self-published or real published. And the teacher says real published. <laughs> and uh, so my, my first book was not real published. Um, but uh yeah, it's called uh, Late Night Meanderings with God, a collection of essays. And um, it needs an editor, even after it's been edited. It needs another editor. I might go back and revise it at one point and try to actually get it published. But uh, so, yeah, and then I'm working on a couple new books. My friend Adam that I mentioned earlier, we're doing a, he goes to seminary with me. So we're writing a theological commentary and devotion on the on the Psalms using the Septuagint rather than what mm. most people use for the Old Testament. And then I'm doing a, a book called uh, "The Fundamentals of a Recovering Fundamentalist." Hmm. And um, how far are you into that? Like 75 pages. How many pages do you plan to write? Like 90? I don't know. Maybe, You're maybe, almost done. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe like double that. I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, we'll see. It's kind of. I have no idea where I'm going with it. I have a general direction, like idea, but uh, not yeah. quite sure. And yeah, and the 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 Psalms commentary is like I've got like two Psalms written. The commentaries on two. Songs. Well, that's most of the Psalms, though. Like that's you're you're most oh, yeah. of the way there. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. just yeah. And actually, with the Septuagint, there's actually a 151st Psalm, mm. so we have to do an extra. Um, and <laughs> besides besides right, I've actually been in a cu- couple of short films. I've done some acting um, with some friends that were videographers, so I got paid for one of them. So technically, I'm an actor. Yeah. And as a child, I used to be a model you have before an I started going page. bald. Yeah, no, I don't have an IND page, but um, <laughs> but uh, I used to live in Thailand as a child, and like I was three, four, and five. And my dad's side of the family is Jewish, and so I guess ethnically I looked not white enough that they the Thais thought I was half Asian, and because of white supremacy, um, white's kind of the norm. So their actors and models tend to be mixed with white, and they're half Thai, so they're lighter skinned. And so I got into the modeling a uh, whole industry when I was in Thailand um, for like, I don't know, a year or two when I was like little. So I, I wore this tight Speedo because that's what they do in Bangkok. They don't wear swim trunks. They wear Speedos. So <laughs> three, four-year-old Gabe wearing a Speedo, arms up in the air with his half Thai, half white parents on the beach. <laughs> ah! And um, so, but yeah, I was on a horror film called uh, The Woods Off Slover Street. And there was a scene where I'm like in my underwear and I'm covered in blood. And it's when I had my long hair and uh, I'm demon, I'm playing a demon possessed detective. And I was like eating this dude, but they cut that scene out. I'm, I'm, I'm really mad it got cut out. But uh, yeah, so besides that, uh, I'm the college missionary. Uh, it's called Missioner, but short for missionary for our church, um, which I just started like a month ago. So I'm supposed to start a whole college ministry. I run a ecumenical blog and podcast and 
conference annually uh, called the Misfits Theology Club, where we have people from all sorts of uh, spots of Christianity, fundamentalists, evangelicals, mainliners, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox. Um, we disagree on a lot of stuff, but we come together to talk about Jesus and affirm some of the historic Christian creeds. And uh, what else do I do? I like to hike sometimes. Mm. So I have a dog I named after the 20th century Swiss theologian, Karl Barth. Really? So, yeah. And then I'm a master's student in um, theological studies, specializing in biblical studies at Portland Seminary. I'm actually in the direct line of the the Inklings, you know, the group that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were part of. Yep. Um, the part of the Inklings uh, was John Walsh. He used to hang out with the Inklings. He was part of their club. And he actually taught at Oxford. And he taught a student named Dan Bruner, who is my one of my professors at seminary. So I'm actually in the direct successive line of the Inklings. Um, and then I'm married to my beautiful wife, Hannah Gordon. She's from Colorado. We met at uh, Oklahoma Baptist University and uh, grew up Assembly of God and Southern Baptist and then ended up in the Episcopal world. And my theology tends to lean Eastern Orthodox. Um, I couldn't be further from uh, Protestantism in general. And even though I, <laughs> I thought anything that wasn't Protestant were a bunch of heretics back then. And now I tend to lean the other way, but, um, everybody's but, somebody's uh, heretic. Everybody's exactly. somebody's heretic. Yeah. So, so I, I have a different question. One that I wasn't yeah. planning and I don't, I think we were recording when we talked about, um, your friend, uh, and coronavirus and, you know, Trump country. Um, yeah. so what I, my response to people when they have those conversations and it comes up, I live out here right outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, work in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, we go all in where, you know, we have entire, white supremacist rallies that, you know, moves yeah. an entire nation into a different conversation about supremacy. Um, you know, we, we're, we're the OGs, you know, when it comes yeah, to the, yeah. you know, the old dominion here. Um, when I ask people, you know, what do you mean by well-regulated when they talk about, well, you know, I'm going to come get these guns. I'm going I'm to come yeah. get these guns. <laughs> How would that come up? You think if you're like, yeah, should I, you know, th- these people are going to go crazy after this vaccine mandate and you can't come to work, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think that your your neighbors would say are are re- well regulated when it comes to the the armed militia there? Like, what would they say in response to? Well, that's how they have people... all the guns, right? The Second Amendment, right? And um, yeah, it yeah. says you know a well regulated militia. I'm just curious who, what what you think well regulated means, which is not anywhere close to what what I was supposed to talk to you about. But just yeah. it's going to be my one side question. I I, I will say um, when it comes. When we get outside the realm of theology, uh-huh. I don't know anything. I don't know anything about theology, but when as soon as we get outside of theology, uh, when I when I have conversations with this friend I was talking about, he I you're think aware that there's a Second Amendment, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, I am. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, he's a political science major, and he'll start talking about politics. I'm like, no, 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 Ryan, we 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 need to go back to theology because you I, you know more about me in this particular thing, and I don't like that. So understood. Um, well regulated. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't even think I understand the question, honestly. Fair, like said, it's a fair answer. It's a fair answer. It's a fair Is answer. About how, are you talking specifically about how uh, I say it? I say it tongue in cheek to say yeah. you know well regulated does not mean I buy whatever I want and use it for whatever purpose I want. Um, but that's that's freedom. Yeah. Uh, that's well. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Anyway, we're gonna get off topic. Uh, speaking of the inkling, so I'm currently reading a book called um, "A Secret History of Christianity." Um, that is on some of the work of Owen Barfield, who I believe was also part of that Inklings Hmm. group. Um, It is fantastic. Very, 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 very good. It was recommended by a friend. 
All right. So the book that you wrote, however, um, yeah, God Speaks, which to be clear, I read it earlier last year. Enough time that I had to read it again before you came back on today. Luckily, I read extremely quickly and I'd already read it once, so it made it easy. And so I want to lay some groundwork as we kind of dive into it. Uh, because a lot of people, yeah, I like how I do that so that only you and like seven people can see it. But it, it, <laughs> I have to talk with my hands. If I put them in my pockets, I think I'll just mumble. Um, so what is essential kenosis? Why does it need to be a thing? And how is that different from the way that most people, you know, view scripture and God and their relationship to it? Yeah, so essential kenosis, uh, the other kind of, terms for it that are more the layman's term uh, would be uh, the uncontrolling love of God or God can't theology. I don't necessarily like the term God can't. Um, I know Tom uses that to be provocative and kind of draw people in, but I don't necessarily like that term and maybe we can get into that. But so the idea of the uncontrolling love of God or essential kenosis is that are a couple things. So starting off uh, with the idea that God is love, right? And most people don't have a problem with that in the Christian tradition. Um, we They might define it in particular ways that people start to argue over, but generally people will affirm that God is love. So God is love, um, and God can only act according to God's nature, right? Um, this is pretty mainstream in Christianity, even in fundamentalist circles, I would say this is more of the mainstream view. Maybe with some of the more extreme neo-Calvinists, you'll get kind of, well, God doesn't have to act like God. But but generally, even I went to a Southern Baptist school, which is fundamentalist, and my philosophy professor said God can't do anything that's illogical, right? God can't make two plus two equal five mm-hmm. or can't make a, a, a straight line not straight or a square circle or something like that. Um, and so starting with the idea that God is love and that God cannot act outside of God's nature. If God's nature is love and God can't act outside of that. um, And we say that we add the caveat that to love is to be uncontrolling, to be uncoercive, to only act in persuasive ways. um, Then, then that entails that God can't control and that God necessarily gives freedom to human creatures. Uh, And since, as Paul says in in Romans, God's gifts are irrevocable, God can't take away what God gives, then that what we end up having, and the example I like to use is uh, Hitler, that God could not take Hitler's freedom away and control him in order to prevent the Holocaust, for instance. Mm. So that's kind of a basic, very um, basic uh, definition to kind of what essential kenosis is. Yeah. Um, What does that say? What's the con, what's the inverse of that for the way that most people view, um, I I, I guess, non-essential kenosis. I don't know what the inverse is called of essential kenosis. So, I mean, there are a couple, I mean, there are myriad of ways we can kind of understand the power of God and so forth. Um, but I think the other, the two that are popular in Protestantism um, are basically the Calvinist perspective and the Arminius perspective. Okay. And the Calvinist perspective says that God generally, and Calvinism is much more um, nuanced than this, but generally kind of the neo-Calvinist perspective would say that God controls everything. Um, so when evil happens in the world, as well as good, I mean, that's God doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, everything, uh, John Piper likes to talk about everything down to the very atoms, the very smallest particles of, of, of reality are controlled by God and doing exactly what God wants them to do. 
Uh, whereas the Arminian perspective would say, well, God can control, right? Uh, but chooses not to. Um, or at least uh, modern Arminians. Maybe Jacob Arminius wouldn't have said it quite like that. But um, that's outside my realm of knowledge. But essentially, modern Arminians would say that God could control, and, and but chooses not to. The problem with that, um, and Tom uses this as an example, this example in one of his books, is that if a mother is at the bank of a frozen river during the winter time and her daughter walks out onto the ice and her mother allows her to walk out on the ice because she freely chose to do so, and then she falls through the ice and her mother chooses not to save her, even though she had the ability to save her because, oh, my daughter made this choice. I'm going to respect that. Um, well, that's not going to hold up in court, right? The, the mother's going to go to jail for a very long time. Uh, and, and that would be the idea of the Armenian. The problem with the Armenian perspective is, is that if God just choose or can control, but chooses not to, yeah. well, then God's morally culpable for the evils that happen in the world. Um, obviously, I think the, the, the Calvinist um, problems are self-evident. I mean, if God controls everything, then God is evil. God yeah. is doing yeah. evil. Yeah. Um, if, if people want to try to make an argument for why that's not bad, uh, I'm not sure we're going to have a productive conversation, but at least with the Armenian perspective, we can kind of um, show why that's problematic and, and people might have an easier time understanding that. So essential kenosis goes a step further than Arminianism. Um, but um, it's not necessarily, um, I don't think it's necessarily out of step with some of the stuff that's in the early church. And I tried to show this in chapter two, where I talk about central kenosis in the book. Um, I use uh, the letter of Dionysius, uh, which is a letter from sometime in the second century the author says that God, there is no compulsion in God. So I think kind of that idea that God cannot control. Mm -hmm. um, and that's in the second century, right? And and the I think it's second Timothy, I might be getting that mixed up, but either first or second Timothy says that when, when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful for God cannot deny himself. And, and that idea was continuous through much of the early church, particularly in the Eastern church fathers. Um, Gregory Nisa and Origen both say, hey, God can't do what's outside of God's nature, and God's nature is only the good, uh, is only loving, and so God can't do evil. And that's not a limitation on God, right? Yeah. Um, that, you know, we might say, well, uh, if your kid comes in running and Daddy, I want that pig to fly. This is a weird example, but Daddy, I want that pig to fly. And will you say, well, actually, little Jimmy, you know, um, pigs can't fly. It's not in their nature to fly. You can't expect it to fly because it's it's it, it's absurd to expect it to fly because it's not in its nature. In the same way, it's absurd to to expect God to be able to do things that are outside of God's nature. Yeah, and it's not a limit upon God. Yeah. So a couple things on that. Do you know what Cincinnati WKRP is? It's a show. I do not. Oh, then you're not going to get this reference. I'm going to send you a YouTube link. It's okay. not going to be funny, and so I'm not going to put it into the episode. But man, the pigs fly makes me think about turkeys flying, which <laughs> makes me think about, you know what I am going to tell you. So it's a show from like the 70s, like my dad would have watched it growing up. Yeah. And it's a radio station in Cincinnati. And they're trying to drum up like business or giveaways or whatever. And it's around Thanksgiving, and they want to be thankful. So they get all of these turkeys and put them in a helicopter and they, they throw them out of the helicopter in an attempt to try to give turkeys away for Thanksgiving to all the people that, you know, need a turkey. These are live turkeys? <laughs> yeah. Or they're dead turkeys? <laughs> well, they're dead because they can't fly. So <laughs> these turkeys are dive bombing the city. 
And <laughs> there's a part at the end, the guy is so contrite. And he's like, I swear as God is my witness, I thought that turkeys could fly. Like I, <laughs> I genuinely thought either way in my, I'll have to send it to you. I've, I've lost it. It's funny. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm laughing. I haven't seen it. It's good. It's good. It's a very old show. Um, so yeah, that's that Timothy reference is actually one of my favorite verses and I'm not one for memorizing scripture. It's actually second Timothy to something. I don't remember the exact verse, but it says, if we are not faithful, he remains faithful, faithful because he can't be false to himself or untrue to himself or he can't deny himself or something yeah. that I'm not, I, don't, I had too many versions running through my head. I don't know exactly what it is. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So no, I like that. What, so you tackle inerrancy in the book mm-hmm. quite a bit and inspiration in the book quite a bit. But before I get there, you said something a moment ago and, and it escapes me now. Um, but you would talk to, Oh, the problem of evil. Um, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, you know, if God can stop things and he doesn't stop things, and that's an issue. So that leads me to a question that I think I've only ever also asked Pete Enns. And so mm-hmm. my question is, you have an entirely smaller, maybe 40-page book of subtitles. Matter of fact, on one of the pages, Gabe, the subtitle, not the subtitle, the the subtext or the footnote or whatever it's called. Yeah, the footnote. Um, yeah, I said subtitle. That's the wrong thing. But it's at <laughs> the bottom like, of the, it's, it's at the bottom of the screen. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> or bottom yeah. of the bottom of the page. Um, one of them, I think, there's only like seven sentences on the page, and the remainder of the page is, is set aside for footnotes. Of which one of those footnotes is like two paragraphs long, and it's not a reference back to another book. It is literally you. I guess working in words that you wanted to say but didn't want to be, yeah, did not want to be in the actual print, um, hoping that people wouldn't read them. But so what is the purpose of a footnote in in, in a book of this way? Because there's a lot of tongue in cheek there. Is that just you trying to, you know, express something that you hope that people won't read? And the reason I ask that is the first one that I, I read was number five. And I think it actually says, the DC comic yeah, one? yeah, yeah. It says the whole DC franchise. I have it here. The whole DC franchise has unfortunately tried to play catch up with the cinematic Marvel universe, whereas Marvel spent nearly a decade developing their storyline, which is part of the reason it's so good. DC tried to do it, and blah 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 blah. But that whole four four sentence footnote is literally just referencing one line from the Batman Superman movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What is the purpose of a footnote? Like, like legitimately, or is, is this just a way to put zingers in there? So, um, I think I could footnotes, I think are like originally an academic thing. Right. Um, and it's generally, I think to show you, Hey, um, I'm only talking about this particular topic this much, but actually here's all the background information and all the stuff I know about mm-hmm. to show you that I did my homework and I'm not dumb. Um, I, and I, that's not going to go in the text. So I think that's kind of like the academic reason. Um, so some of that is, I, I would say behind why I'm putting footnotes, some of it, obviously not this one. Um, but, uh, yeah, some of it is just so, you know, a particular topic I'm not, when you're writing a book like this, you got to be careful because you're going to bore people really easily. And so oftentimes I'll put things on the footnote that I think are pertinent or whether it's a definition of a particular term. I did that as well. Um, just extra stuff that I think is helpful that, but it's not necessarily necessary to the text itself. However, 
I also liked saying things that uh, kind of putting those zingers in there for those people, those special people that uh, were willing to read the footnotes. So, you know, <laughs> give them some. I think I have one about zombie horses. You do in the end. Um, I think that's in chapter yeah. six. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, like, how could I, you know, that footnote you brought up about DC, how could I not mention that? Because it was such a terrible movie. Like, but was, do you not realize the 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 paradox that you put people in? So to get the full context, they now have to read or, or watch the movie, and so mm-hmm. you're 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 pointing people towards a terrible movie to get the full context of what you've written, and that feels that feels wrong to me because I agree it is it is an overtly <laughs> terrible movie. So so I, I will say I I had not thought about that. Um, now my whole world is Shift. is imploding, but uh, <laughs> but you know bad movies in some ways can have a pedagogical function. They can have a teaching function, right? Because they show you how not to do a movie, right? Like my my grandpa um, was a missionary and he left my grandma for a type prostitute. He serves as a wonderful negative example of what not Not to to be like when you're a missionary. So, and so, you know, maybe that's what this movie is about. It's to show us not how not how not to do movies. Yeah. Fair enough. So I don't necessarily want to um, beat the zombie horse of inerrancy. Um, mm. That is not the way you use that. I don't believe that footnote, but that's okay. That's the way I'm going to use it. Just because for a couple of reasons. So we'd referenced Jared from a few um, mm-hmm. a few a few minutes ago, and I he was one of the first people I talked to on the show, and we already talked about that a couple of times. Though we can weave yeah. it in and out. I'm more interested in the way that God speaks through inspiration and how that relates to the Bible that you and I have today. And I want to ask a question after that, that regardless of what your answer is, I'm going to find a way to make the question work um, because <laughs> it is the one question that I wrote down because um, I would like your opinion on it. But okay. inspiration, how is God speaking through that to, to be tongue in cheek off of the the way that you've, you've worded the book? Yeah. How is, okay. Yeah. So, um, we're gonna have to zoom out for a bit. Fair um, enough. Buckle up. We're getting on a roller coaster. So okay. put on some pants, maybe a diaper. Um, <laughs> put on some socks that can have them blown up. So first of all, so I, I, I'm deeply influenced by Eastern Orthodoxy and and the Eastern tradition um, uh, of the early church. And when we think about inspiration in the West, especially the modern West, we have a totally different conception of what the early church did. So when we think about inspiration today, we think about, uh, it, we locate inspiration in the minds of the authors and in the words of the page. That is, we locate it in the past, historically in the past. Um, whereas that's not how, and, and that's why, um, all of this comes from modern biblical scholarship that arose in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, um, which has a historical focus, but that's not how the early church thought about meaning. And therefore, because inspiration was located in, in the past, in the minds of the authors and the words of the page, meaning itself is located in the original, uh, the original intended meaning by the author that is found in the words in the past. So meaning is the is history. Um, and that's a way of looking at history. That's very modern. That's why you find, um, conservative evangelical textual critics going back to trying to figure out what did the original text say, because they, they see truth and meaning as located in the past. And this is the same, uh, the same understanding of history that actually underlines the Jesus seminar people who also go back. What did Jesus actually say? 
because they both are convinced by modernist conceptions of what it means to know things and where knowledge and, and, and meaning is located. They're both convinced that it's in the past. And that's a modern way of thinking about all of this. Mm-hmm. So in, in the early church, um, meaning is not located in the authors. Meaning is not located in the words or the text itself. Um, meaning is located in the interpretation of the text. And that's also where inspiration is located. Um, and so, and, and it's and specifically, it's located in the person of Jesus, right? So when the uh, Philip, when the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch runs into I, uh, Philip, mm-hmm. the evangelist on the road back to Ethiopia, he's a, a proselyte uh, who's come to, to Jerusalem because he's converted to the faith of Jesus. The Jewish faith. He's not Jewish. He's Ethiopian, but he's converted the Jewish faith. So he's gone to Jerusalem to 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 worship God, and now he's going back to Ethiopia. He's sitting in his chariot on the side of the road. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah, one of the scrolls of Isaiah. And Philip comes along. He meets him in his chariot. He's like, "What's up, bro?" Because Philip's an extrovert, right? And the Ethiopian says, uh, "Who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else?" So here's 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 the here's the good stuff. Our question, if we were the people in that chariot, we would have said, what was the intended meaning by the original author? What did this mean back then? Mm. That's, not what the philo- that's not what the eunuch asked. He says, who is this about? Which isn't a, pa- a question about the past, whether the author, what they intended, or whether what the, the, the contextual meaning of the words are historically. It's, it's a question of the who which is in the now, the here and now. So um, Phillips uh, answers him. He doesn't, he doesn't negate his question. He doesn't say you're asking the wrong question. He assumes he's asking the right question. And he says, Jesus. So, so the meaning of the text and its inspiration is not found in the words themselves or the authors in the, uh, the, the minds of the authors. It's found in the person of Jesus. Um, and so when we're looking at second, a text like second Timothy, where it says all scriptures, God breathed, mm. there's a couple texts that kind of help, I think, illuminate what this means. Um, given what we have just kind of, uh, shuffled out concerning how we understand meaning and inspiration, where it's located and how the early church did. So, uh, the first text I want to briefly mention is Genesis one, right? Okay. And Genesis one, uh, or maybe it's two Genesis two, I think two, seven, um, I might be getting that mixed up. In one of those chapters, um, it talks about the creation of Adam, right? Um, and in, and there's two there's two stages to the creation of Adam. Um, there's God takes the dust of the earth and he forms Adam, which forms is kind of another way to say creates. He creates Adam, he forms Adam from the dust of the earth. And then, that's the first p- part of this process, and then only then does he breathe the life of God into Adam making Adam an animated living being. Mm-hmm. Um, so Genesis, there's the author of second Timothy, um, who, by the way, is the first one, as far as we can tell to coin the word, God breathed didn't exist before. Right. Um, seems to be harping back to Genesis, which the new Testament authors are doing this all the time. Um, and so he seems to be harping back to Genesis, but he doesn't say all scriptures, God breathed, or he doesn't say all scripture is God formed and God breathed or that it's God formed. He mm. says, God breathed. So it's not created by God. It's breathed in by God. And remember, what does John 14, six say? John 14, six says that I am the way Jesus speaking. I'm the way, the truth and the life. So Jesus is life. And as we know, in the Nicene creed, Jesus, uh, it says, we believe in the Holy spirit, the giver of life. 
well, who is life? Christ is life. What is that second process that God breathes into Adam, the life of God? Yeah. So the life of God being breathed, given by the Holy Spirit is Christ. So, and then we jump to, to Matthew chapter five, verse 17 through 19, the Sermon on the Mount. I promise these are connected. So Jesus says, um, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, right? Uh, but to fulfill them. But then that bastard, a couple of verses later, is like, hey, what's up, guys? You've heard that, you know, in the Old Testament, it says you should uh, hate your enemy, you know, and you should uh, do this or this. It actually doesn't say necessarily say hate your enemy. I think it's implied. But he but he, he says, you've heard it said eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Or you've heard it say uh, to swear on oaths. And then he says, but I say to you, yeah. you know, love your enemies, uh, take care of them, so forth. Um, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Um, anything more comes from the evil one. And so basically he says, actually, those Old Testament texts got it wrong. And I'm telling you something. I'm telling you the truth because I am truth. Um, I am the Thor. And, and in Matthew, what you find is over and over and over the con. And actually, I think in most of the Gospels. Uh, the concept of where where is authority located comes up time and time again. And in Matthew, uh, it's always Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And at the very end, in Matthew 28, Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Yeah. He doesn't say scripture does. He says he does. He doesn't say the church does. He says he does. But in and in, in when he says, um, uh, but I say to you, he's, he's con- he seems to be contradicting what he just said a few verses earlier when he says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So what's going on here? I think there's a couple ways we can handle this. And and one of those ways I talk about in the book, maybe if you want to talk about that later, we can, but connecting to what I, we were talking about inspiration a moment ago, this is all coming together. I promise. Um, <laughs> so he, the word behind fulfill is in Greek is palero and it can be translated as fulfill. That's one of the semant, uh, semantic meanings, meanings of the word. It can also be translated as to make full of or to fill. Um, and Origen in the third century, who I'm a big fan of, and his commentary on the book of Matthew, he, he pulls out this text and he starts to speak about scripture metaphorically. He uses the metaphor of a net. And he says, scripture as the net before Christ was yet to be filled. Um, and then he cites Matthew 5.17. So it seems that Matthew understands it, at least this word palero in the context of Matthew 5.17, that I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to palero them, to fulfill them, at least has the double meaning of to fill. So if Jesus is saying, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fill them, well, what do we remember about fulfilled? We remember Genesis, yeah. the creation of Adam, that God breathes, the Holy Spirit gives life, that yeah. life is Christ. He fills it into Adam, and then he becomes a living being. Yeah. And this yeah. is incarnational language right here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like to think about it in terms of a jelly donut, you know, the donut being scripture, and the jelly is Jesus who's squeezed into it by the Holy Spirit, the baker. <laughs> is there know? a way to do this um, without diabetes? No, no, diabetes is always involved. Um, I'm always talking about diabetes because it runs in my family and both my grandparents have it. And uh, I'm always like, Hannah, you can't bring home ice cream. You're going to give me diabetes. But, um, so I got to use analogies that include diabetes. And so, yeah, so so when he says, I'm not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fill them. And we connect that to the Genesis. And then when we go back, take all that back with us to 2 Timothy 3.16, inspiration is not in the mind of the authors. It's not in the text itself. And indeed, Origen even talks about the, the text is like he, he's citing 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about we have jars 
uh, clay jars with treasure inside of them. He, 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 he uses that analogy from Paul to say that scripture is, are these clay jars, these broken clay jars and what's inside of it is Christ. Hmm. So inspiration is sacramental or incarnational um, for, for those who are not familiar with sacramental language. So cry inspiration is the Holy spirit taking up these texts and filling Christ, Christ's sacramental or incarnational presence into the text. And it becomes the literal text becomes a sort of body for yeah. the, for the presence of Christ within. And he becomes allegorical or spiritual meaning within. And that's why Philip and the Ethiopian can say, who is the prophet talking about? Meaning is located in the who is located in Christ. Christ, he is the meaning because he is the one present in the text, transforming it into his image. Been enough weeks. You know what that sound means. 15, 30 seconds tops. I'm going to be back in just a second. So the you talked about the nets being. This is not my mm-hmm. other question. I just want to follow up on a few things. So yeah. you talked about the nets being filled, you know, by mm-hmm. by Christ. Is that yeah. you using that as as a as an analogy, or is that that net that net usage in the text? So that is from origin. It's not in Matthew, as okay. far as I can tell. Only, but the, the the analogy of scripture as a net. Uh, being filled with Christ is from origin. The I only reason I I ask is I'm I'm the it, it calls to mind the other story with a net where you know like they've been fishing all day can't find any fish there is no food which without food there is no life. Yeah, shows up, dude. You're doing it wrong. Just throw it over there. Trust me, it's gonna be fine. I'm okay. I'm here now, and you, yeah. I'm here with you. And yeah. then all of a sudden we're we're tipping over boats with life or food or fish. And who is who's who was the early symbol for Jesus? Yeah, for the Christians. Yeah, fish. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Origin would be proud of you. You just read that allegorically. You, you got this, you, you found Christ in the text. <laughs> I don't. I, so I, I've been told what did, uh, so I talked to Barbara Brown Taylor and she told me I was a perniscopist. I don't know what the word is. I don't know how to say it. A reader, like a certain type of reader where you take things and yeah. you're like, Oh, these go together. And some editor came in and said, Nope, you need to put 400 words in between here. But they should have yeah. been, you know, they were originally together. Yeah. Which, based on your like appendices or um, extra stuff at the end, appears as though uh, the editor of this book told you to do the same thing because there's extra yeah. stuff in the back that appears yeah. to go in the first part of the book, but that's a different conversation. Tom, it was Tom. Was it Tom? Tom edited it. It was Tom. Huh. Well, he was the he was brought on as like the theological editor, so just to kind of give feedback. And yeah, he told me it was too much. You said something in passing that I don't think most people listening, maybe they caught on and and, didn't, and heard it and said, hey, what? So I want to call back to it. So you okay. referenced 2 Timothy 3.16, and you basically yeah. said that word doesn't exist anywhere else. Um, yeah. Like, I'm assuming you mean in the Bible, or do you mean in history? Or Because there's other words like that, like, a, what is it, the arc? So I don't know how to say it, the, the word that people will use about homosexuality. That's later on. Um, it's A-R-K. S-E-N, uh, how do you say I'd it? have to look at my Greek Bible. Oh, have on it's another one of those words that like exist only in scripture and then like a, an oracle, like a Syrian or a, a civil oracle, one of those other. Yeah. Arc. Yeah. So this word, so when, when a scholar is looking at, words have meaning only according to their use, right? Um, words are given meaning 
all words are made up and they're given meaning by how they're used in, in a sentence and in the context. So when a scholar wants to decide what does this word mean, they're going to look, how is it used in its sentence and its paragraph in the letter as a whole? Um, is it so, so for instance, for this word that we translate as God breathed in second Timothy, they're going to say, is this anywhere else in second Timothy? Is it anywhere else in nice? They're going to ask, is it found anywhere else in the new Testament? And if it, if it is, they're going to say, okay, well, how does this help us under looking at how it's used? How does it help us understand its meaning? Um, they're also going to look, is it anywhere else in the contemporary Jewish literature surrounding this text? Um, and in the Greco-Roman literature, kind of contemporaneous surrounding this text, maybe around the same time, a little bit before, a little bit after. And it seems that the author of Second Timothy coined this word, that they, they're the ones that first came up with it. And so we don't have, so those, those people like John MacArthur, I'm going to throw him under the bus who say, um, oh, this word means, it means it's God's word. God breathed means it's, it came straight out of the mouth of God. It's, it's the word of God. Um, he can't say that it's, 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 it's a, it's a lot more complicated than that. We don't necessarily easily have the meaning, which is part of the reason why I think you have to go to some of these other texts to kind of fill out some of that meaning. And I think you have to go to uh, the first people that use that word. Mm. And the first people that use that word were out what's outside the, the new Testament were the church fathers. And that the way they you they used it was much broader than the way we use it. So they used inspiration to talk about uh, the work of the Greek philosophers like Plato and Socrates, and to talk about their own writings. Uh, the author of either first or second Clement, um, talks about his own writing as inspired by God. Gregory of Nyssa talking about uh, his brother Basil's commentary um, on Genesis 1 in the 4th century says it was more inspired than Moses's own writing. Mm. Um, they taught use it to refer to, to, to bishops and creeds and the, the uh, decisions of councils and, uh, and amongst other writings. And so, um, that's not to say that everything it, we tend to think what's inspired is scripture, which is not really how they, they didn't think those were synonymous, but um, that's not to say everything is scripture, but it, it, it's to say that inspiration as a concept, a theological concept was used in a much broader way than we use it today. Um, and it's not used synonymously with the word of God. Mm. When they say inspiration, they don't use it to say, this is the word of God. Cause they use it to talk about monks. And all these other things I mentioned. And so if you look in those contexts and then you swap that out real quick with word of God and you look at that, does that make sense in the context? It doesn't. It's not synonymous. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. So I want to nuance that a bit. Um, so is there a difference between inspired writing and scripture? And if no, why is the canon closed? And why are other things not more readily today considered scripture? Yeah. So. First of all, uh, John Baer, a Eastern Orthodox patristic scholar, points out that it's not until the 1700s that the word canon even gets used to refer to a set list of books in the Bible. Um, before then, it was used to refer to the rule of faith. The canon of truth is another way it was talked about, um, which is essentially the gospel message. Kind of uh, The creeds are an example of the rule of faith or canon of faith. And so that was actually, there was no idea of sola scriptura. When we, when we think about, especially Protestants, when we think about the early church, we kind of anachronistically, we, we superimpose uh, sola scriptura back into the early church, and we think that the, the canon was how they decided things, right? The, the canon of scripture was how they decided things. But it actually wasn't. It was the rule of faith, um, which you can find this rule of faith 
Um, the creeds, again, are a form of it. You find it in Irenaeus and Origen and a bunch of early writers. And they all kind of agree on some of the basic same things, that God is the creator of everything, that God is triune, that Jesus Christ is the son of God and, and is fully human, um, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the ascension, some of these basic things. And that was what they used to decide um, what was scripture. So, for instance, they'd, they'd take the Gospel of Thomas, which is a Gnostic so-called gospel, and they would say, this doesn't line up with this totally discounts any of the suffering of Christ, totally discounts the cross, um, and, and doesn't line up with the rule of faith. It can't be, we can't consider it scripture. Um, and so their inspiration did get applied to other um, texts, and people certainly thought that other scriptures that didn't end up in our quote-unquote New Testament canon that early Christians believed were scriptures. So like the Shepherd of Hermas and the Didache were examples of books that were considered scripture by some of the early church. Um, and so depending on who you talk to, certain books they would consider scripture would be different from other people. Mm. So it was more the, it was more gray, but there certainly were books that the church did not that agreed on these are not scripture, like the gospel of Thomas. And, uh, and so, and then that also brings into the, the problem of Canon. We kind of think, I, I think possibly, I think uh, Dan Brown's book and the movie that was made off that with Tom Hanks, the Da Vinci code, I think probably has something to do. It shapes our, under, our kind of, when we picture canonization, we, we picture that movie, right? The scene where there's a bunch of old white dudes in the council of Nicaea in 325 in Turkey, and they're deciding what books go in the Bible and whatnot. And they're like secretly, oh, we can't have these Gnostic books. That's, that's, that couldn't be farther from the historical facts. Yeah. There are no white dudes. In there are no, yeah, no white dudes. In the culture. I want to get a t-shirt <laughs> so. that says um, council of Nicaea and on the back hashtag no whites. I'll make it. Um, I'll make yeah. it. So <laughs> I'll make uh, it can right I now. say this at church? And <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they were all brown dudes. Athanasius was a black dude from Nubia and he was at the council of Nicaea. So you had black people, you had brown people from Turkey and Syria and Egypt. Yeah, and but Jesus was places. white when he was at Nicaea though, right? Oh, oh yeah, definitely. definitely. Blonde hair, blue eyes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then, um, and not only were they brown and black, um, they were actually, um, so uh, they were actually, um, they were the, the topic of what books are in the Bible and what are not never came up. That had nothing to do with any of the councils, any of the ecumenical councils, hmm. the council of Nicaea, the council of Chalcedon in 381, the council of Ephesus in 431, the council of Chalcedon in 451. None of those have anything to do with what books go into the Bible and whatnot. Those had to do with doctrines of God, who is Jesus, who is the Holy Spirit, yeah. who oh, is the Father. Yeah, yeah. homoousia um, and some of that other stuff, yeah. Yeah, nothing to do with uh, with the Bible. So, so yes, uh, there's no such thing. It's canon. We all do agree on 27 books in the New Testament, but that's just, you know, that we that's how over time we all have ended up using 27 books. Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox have all ended up using. So on a practical level, there is functionally a, a canon, but never officially did a count, ecumenical council get together and say, these are our 27 books. And for the Old Testament, it's even more complicated because we do have three different uh different books. The yeah. Eastern Orthodox have a different number than the Catholics, and, and that's a different number than than the uh, Protestants. Protestants have the least amount of books. For people that say, you know, Sola Scriptura, you know, they, they have the least amount of books. You'd think they want more books. They have but, the most editing. Um, most editing. So to answer your question, uh, so no canon, um, but there were, were books that weren't uh, considered scripture 
that were inspired. And then there were other scriptures that aren't in our New Testament that were considered scripture by certain people. And so the, the picture's kind of complicated. Yeah. So is there anything to say then that um, I can't take? Oh, shoot, let's just take this one. I'm going to take this one because it's here. It's small. So there's nothing to say that I couldn't say just this is this is scripture. This is inspired. This is scripture. I say that tongue in cheek. Um, yeah, yeah. Why not? Or C.S. Lewis is great. He should be a saint. Can you be so, a saint if you're not part of the Catholic Church? Well, there's saints in the East and Orthodox Church. That's what Catholics I meant. Don't. That's what yeah, I yeah. meant. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, can was he? But he wasn't Eastern Orthodox either, was he? <laughs> no, he was my denomination, Anglican. But he was the best kind of Anglican. I I think he was a, a an Anglo Orthodox. His theology is not very Protestant that I can tell. I think it's more. Huh. Eastern Orthodox, but yeah. Um, but could I call? Could I call yeah. that scripture? Um, I would probably say no. Could you call it inspired? Maybe. Okay. Um, but could you call it scripture? I would. My personal opinion would probably be no. I would say, what does the church call scripture? Right. Okay. Um. So I wouldn't say you know, the church has never called C.S. Lewis's book, and it's too new. Right. We have these other books have been around to 2000 years now. And for 2000 years, um, the church has functionally used most of these books as scripture. So. Fair enough. What in your dog's face when you saw your dog said to yourself, that's Carl Barth. So he does kind of look like Carl Barth. If you put glasses <laughs> on him, it's kind of got that wrinkly face, old man face. Um, but I originally wanted to name him origin. And my wife was like, there's no way we're naming our dog origin and so we were going through names ignatius of antioch and john wesley and so your wife um, had no opinion on church history your wife got no opinion uh, on she the did not the like those she liked carl bart <laughs> no she we went with carl bart because she was like we some someone popped out the name carl bart and she was like i like carl bart let's go, go with carl, I'd bart. Go with carl. <laughs> yeah so we just call him bart but his full name is carl bart so, and because, you know, because Bart wrote a bunch of dogmatics, you know, it's, it's kind of punny. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Towards the, the back half of your book, and, and this will be the last probably heavy question I'll ask you, and then we'll, we'll end with a few because, and for those listening, there is a lot in this book. It, it is, we've, I, we would, we would have to talk for seven or eight hours to actually talk through the book. And, and I don't, I don't have the ability to do that. I'll have to eat it eventually. But there's a part in here, you're talking about Lewis's model, and I can't remember what it's the model of, but you say what I'm calling participatory incarnation of inspiration. Um, and so we may need to define that. But the part here is that that I am trying to get, where is it at? Hold on, let me find it. So you say, or you write, this initial response is what we call scripture. God continues this participatory act of revealing God's self through a back and forth dialogical process, even after scripture's production. Um, and then you go on further to say, so it's not as if scripture is our only response to God, but we continue to respond to the revelation who is the word that comes to us through the text. We can sum up this, we can sum up the process this way. God presents God's self and our initial response to that is scripture. And so can you break that apart of it? Because yes. that what is, page is that? Uh, 157 in the PDF. I don't know if that's the actual page. Okay. I'll find it. So continue with your question. No. So that is the question. So okay. that's why I asked that question about C.S. Lewis, not specifically Lewis. It just happens to be the smallest book up here. And the other ones are actually uh, uh, Muslim and, and Islamic books. Um, Cause that's what I'm trying to learn about recently. Cause why not learn something new? It just happened to be happenstance that it is C.S. Lewis. Um, there's a Rob Bell book behind there. It would be really heretical if I said, could this be scripture? People would just 
which is you know hit hit the eject key on on subscribing to the show um yeah <laughs> Can so I say this at church? yeah why not yeah so what is participatory incarnation of inspiration and i can't remember what it's called but like the chapter before you actually contest that with a different way of of uh it's not it's i think it's greg boyd you, you give boyd has a different view of incarnation of inspiration but but yeah can you break apart what lewis's model is and why you're calling it participatory yeah incarnation? so lewis, yeah. lewis had this uh let me see if I can find the quote. Yeah. So in his book, Reflection on the Psalms, which is a fantastic book on the Bible. Um, and I, I'll just read the quote here real quick. He says in this towards the beginning of the book, it seems to me appropriate, almost inevitable that when that great imagination speaking about God, which in the beginning for its own delight and for the delight of men and angels and of beasts had invented and formed the whole world of nature submitted to express itself, that being God, in human speech, that speech should sometimes be poetry. For poetry, too, is a little incarnation, giving body to what had been before invisible and inaudible. So C.S. Lewis had this view, and I don't think it's, it, it's not exclusive to him. It goes back to, it's kind of a general incarnational view of, uh, of the Bible and of Christ that goes back to the early church. But he had this view that human speech, poetry and human speech in general, served as a vehicle for the word of God, being the second person of the Trinity whom we call Jesus Christ. And so I kind of take that and, and add to it a little bit. So um, when we talked about, in, in chapter three, I talk about participatory notions of inspiration. So essentially in that chapter, I say God reveals God's self and, and revelation is always Christ, right? Um, from a New Testament perspective. And when God reveals God's self, we as human beings who always interpret things, right? We're, we're never not interpreting things. What we receive is interpreted. And then what we produce out of that as a response is a human interpretation of that response. And so God reveals God's self. That's the first part. We respond, it's naturally interpreted, and that response is a human interpretation. So that's the first part. That's why it's participatory, because it's not just like God's dumping a bunch of words on a page, and that's God. That's how God made scripture. No, it's God does really reveal God's self, but then it's up to us to interpret that, and we produce human scriptures that are a human response or interpretation. So that's kind of the first step. But that process of God revealing God's self and then us responding to it doesn't stop with the production of scripture, right? It continues. So God then picks up those words as a vehicle for himself, and, and the Holy Spirit squeezes Jesus, the jelly, into the donut, right? Um, <laughs> it squeezes it, squeezes him into the words of scripture. That's your shirt right there. That's jelly donuts. Jelly, I don't know. Jelly donut mean. Jesus. Jelly yeah. donut Jesus. Anyway. So he squeezes Jesus into into the, the the words of Scripture, and then those serve as a vehicle to bring him to us once again, and then we respond to that right with a human interpretation, and then that response he picks up again and starts the whole process over. So it's just this continual process of um, God incarnating God's self in and through what we humans respond. And interpret. Hmm. Does that it, make sense? It does. So that's theosis, then, correct? Or is that am I using the wrong um, word there? 
Well, theosis is the uh, us participating in the divine nature, becoming more and more like him and sharing more and more in his immortality and, and likeness. So I don't, I mean, I think that's probably part of the process because when we do encounter Christ, right, and we freely open ourselves up to Christ, we are brought into further union and share with the divine. So, yeah, I think that is part. Uh, scripture definitely serves as a means for our theosis, right? Okay. That's, I think, how I would say it. Yeah. Um, this is not in your book, but I'm curious. So the way that I view sin is an intentional act that breaks shalom or the kingdom of God. Like I intentionally chose this and I create a small hell. And so in mm-hmm. keeping with the jelly donut metaphor, mm-hmm. um, what portion of my personal volitious sin enters in through that metaphor of a jelly donut? Like, is that me throwing out the box? Like, I want to stretch the metaphor a bit, but hopefully I'm asking my question in a good way. I don't know if I am or not. That's the best way I can ask it. If I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying, does Jesus, does the jelly enter into our donuts of sin? Well, I don't believe in original sin, but like... No, but just our particular donuts. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) To keep stretching the metaphor. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you shouldn't believe in original sin. That's an invention of Augustine. You should believe in the Eastern Orthodox perspective. But uh, anyway. I do. um, I do. Originally made blessed and whole. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Amen. Praise be to him. Um, So, (laughs) yeah, uh, I have thought about this a little bit. we can go back to the Hitler example. Does 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 Godwin's law exist on podcasts? Does does what? You don't know what Godwin's law is. I don't think so. You continue saying what you're going to say, and I'll find it okay. for you, and then it'll okay. make sense. So, I'll I'll start with this, Maximus. So this is my first time really trying to articulate this question. I'm I'm an out loud processor, so this is going to sound probably jumbled, but. Maximus, the confessor in the seventh century, said that all of creation is an incarnation of the word of God, that being who we know is Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and so, and that's the Eastern perspective that all things are sacramental, right? All things are filled with Christ. All things are a vehicle that bring us uh, into the presence of the word, not just the bread and wine, not just scripture, uh, not just, uh, you know, the, the, the rain or whatever, but everything is sacrament. Everything is filled with the, the presence of Christ. Um, and if that's true, my initial thought, not giving too much thought to it, but my initial thought would be, yes, that God is filled into our sin. I don't buy the idea that God is holy and therefore cannot stand in the presence of holiness because one that seems to defeat omnipresence, Mm. which is a, um, I tend to be a classical theist. So to deny the omnipresence of God, I think would be problematic. So if God really is everywhere, then God is always around sin. God is present in and through and uh, in and through it um, and all around it. We live and move and have our being in God. And that includes our sinful acts as well. So uh, my initial thoughts is yes, that God could certainly use that as a vehicle. I, that's with only just, you know, initial thoughts. Um, I could see maybe that being problematic. You know, if we think about a rape or Hitler's genocide, like how much do we want to say that God is present in that? Um, And maybe that's some of that paradoxicalness of the cross that we, we don't want to say that Christ, that God is present in the suffering of the cross. Right. Um, but there he is. And I, and maybe that's a way of saying a revelation to us to say that God has always been present in our suffering and in the, in the sin that causes 
suffering um, and is there present um, seeking to persuade us to the good, seeking to bring transformation and seeking to make alive what is dead because sin is in, in some sense is dead, right? It's, it's something that's not really doesn't have life in and of itself. It's the, 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 absence of life. And so if Christ, who is life, is present in all things, including our sin, then he seeks to to resurrect and to bring life into those areas of our life that are um, un, uh, unfathomably evil. So yeah, I don't yeah. know if any of that made sense. No, no, I like it. And, and I also feel as though, I told you at the beginning, I like to ask questions that are not in the book jacket. And so I feel as though the fact that you're like, I don't know, oh, I'm going to have to process it. I count yeah. that as a success. I, again, I like to ask questions that are slightly different. Um, so Godwin's law is this, if you can believe Wikipedia, and, and why not? So it says, it is, uh, it is an internet adage asserting that as an online discussion grows longer, regardless of the topic or scope, the probability of a comparison involving Nazis or Adolf Hitler approaches. In less mathematical terms, the longer the discussion, the more likely a Nazi comparison becomes. And with a long enough discussion, it is an absolute certainty. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a, it, and to be honest, if you like get in the Facebook comments of a long enough thread and eventually it always happens, like it's, it's just a few degrees of separation of the original post. Um, it is wow. quite fun to watch Duvall. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so this question, so I got two final questions for you and then, and then I'll have you point people where they should go, which is not the author page of the Misfits Theology page. We've already, we've not already yet. discussed. That. Hopefully it'll be fixed soon. <laughs> we've already discussed that. Um, so, and this may go to one of the other books you said you were writing, but so one of the questions is I, that I've been asking people and it, and I take it just from the name of the show. Cause I realized I wasn't actually using that to the full, you know, I want to get all of the legs out of that horse that I can. What are yeah. some of the things that you feel like we should be speaking about in our churches or feel liberated enough to be able to talk about in our churches, not as a clergy, but as a congregation. And maybe if we don't, yeah. it's actually going to cause quite a bit of damage if we can't figure out the, the courage to do so. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get vulnerable here. There are plenty of things that we do talk about, right? Uh, and often those devolve into arguments. Like if I would have, you know, can I say this at church? I was thinking about that question uh, because that's the name of the podcast, right? And when I was in the Southern Baptist world, which is where I came from when I wandered in the Episcopal, to the Episcopal church, what I found was that I could not be open about what I thought about scripture, about the conclusions I was coming to, what I was seeing in scripture itself. And when I came to the Episcopal world there, you know, if I, if I did have those conversations, right, those conversations are happening a lot, say in the Southern Baptist church. Uh, it's just that there's a very specific answer they want, which I, I actually think is a heretical answer. Um, which answer? I, the, that the Bible is the word of God. I okay. actually think that's heresy. Um, just drop that piece in there. I'm not going to say any more about that, but um, but if but I couldn't really, if I didn't give that answer, right. You know, I couldn't actually say that out loud because it would devolve into, to, to, to an argument and sh maybe shaming and ostracizing and getting kicked out, which I eventually did get, get kicked out of a Southern Baptist church. But um, so two things, part of what drew me to the Episcopal church was that I could say things in church, right. That I wouldn't necessarily have been able to say in my fundamentalist background. Um, but the thing I want to say quickly, and then I'll jump to another thing, is that 
when we do have conversations about things that we disagree about, right, whether it's scripture, first of all, we should be able to say, talk about these things, right? And we should be able to talk about them in a way that's filled with grace and kindness and generosity and mercy and all those things that, you know, the gifts of the spirit that Paul talks about um, and that are integral to the, the teachings of Jesus. And oftentimes, uh, whether we're progressive, whether we're conservative, whether we're Catholic or whatever the case may be, um, we aren't actually living out the teachings of Jesus when we have these conversations, right? Um, and so, one, I do think we need to be able to have these conversations about the Bible. Um, but I think one of the things that's so divisive to the church right now, and I know that from my uh, some of my own experience, but also the denomination I'm in, is homosexuality. You brought it up earlier, right? Sure. Um, that's not something that can be talked about in one way in the fundamentalist world I came from. Um, and it can't be talked about in another way in the Episcopal world that I live in. If you're in the Southern Baptist world or AG world, for instance, um, if you have a progressive view of homosexuality, you can't talk, you can't talk about that, right? That's not something you can say at church. You'll get kicked out. But if you're in the Episcopal church, oftentimes it's the same thing. But instead, now, if you have a conservative view, you can't say that at church, right? Mm. Um, it'll be misunderstood. It'll be, you'll get ostracized. Um, and so I would hope that people, I think that's one thing, just because that's such a divisive topic right now. The United Methodist is about to have a split over it. The Episcopal Church had a split over it 10, 15 years ago at this point. Um, and I don't think that's a matter of orthodoxy. I think we, this is something we can disagree about. We can have loving, respectful conversations about, and we can come together and, and actually come, come away from those conversations disagreeing um, and still loving one another and being part of the same church. Yeah. Um, so that, that I think is, is something that immediately comes to mind. Um, I've known people, I'll just be honest. Um, I tend to have a more traditional view in my first Episcopal church that I was in um, when I did say that at church, right. Can I say this at church? The answer was no. Yeah. Um, the, I was very viciously verbally attacked um, and shamed and ostracized. And um, I think I ended up crying that night. And uh, the lady accused me of uh, making statements about rape being than better than homosexuality and all these absurd things that I never said. So I think this is a huge area where we can actually practice what it means to look like Jesus and follow Jesus. Mm. Um, and sometimes that means eating at the same table with someone you disagree with and doing so in a loving, respectful way and coming away from that conversation, maybe even disagreeing and still being able to come back the next day and have a beer with them. So, yeah. When you try to wrap uh, or put words to what God is, what do you say to that? Um, God looks like Jesus. I'm stealing that from Brian Zahn, but I think, I think that is, is spot on when, if you want to know what God looks like, look to Jesus. Um, Jesus is what God looks like. Um, I think that also would include, uh, the Trinitarian nature. And I think that would include mystery. Um, God is both knowable in the person and face of Jesus, but God is also beyond anything that we could ever comprehend. He is infinite and he's not a he, I just use that male pronoun, but God is beyond gender and beyond sex, um, beyond our human constructs. And yet 
is still knowable in the person of Jesus and I think the dogma of the church. So, mm, Yeah, perfect. Gabriel, I have enjoyed it. We've gone all over the place. I don't know that we talked about 12% of your book, um, and that's okay. That's okay. Um, it is a very good book. you listening. You should go and get it. I very much enjoyed reading it. Thanks again for sending it to me. But more importantly, yeah. a year and a half later, thanks for... Um, Thanks for finally coming on to the show. And that's not your fault. That's mine. But it's been been a pleasure to talk with you, my friend. Yeah, I appreciate having me on the show. Yeah, no problem. I haven't added it up, but there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of podcasts on the internet. And I am humbled that you continue to download this one. If this is your first time here, please know that there are transcripts of these shows. Not always in real time, but I do my best. And if you go back in the logs, you can find transcripts for pretty much any episode that you'd like. The show is recorded and edited by me, but it is produced by the patron supporters of the show. That is one of the best, if not the best way that you can support the show. If you get anything at all out of these episodes, if you think on them or if you, you know, you're out and about and you tell your friends about it or, hey, mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, boss, pastor, here's what I heard. What are your thoughts on that? If this is helping you in any way, and it is helping me, consider supporting the show in that manner. It is extremely inexpensive, but collectively, it is so very much helpful. Now for you... I pray that you are blessed and you know that you're cherished and beloved. We'll talk soon.